didn't our men do well? Yeah. Put your hands together. We thought it might be very good to just sit for a moment and interview someone who's one of those people that we're talking about this morning, an asylum seeker or a boat person. And between Megan and Amin, they've done very well at reading that passage for us. Some of you might know Amin. You've been here 11 months in Australia. And uh, he has a wife, Husty, who's not here today because every time we retell the story, even watching Amin just then, uh, various country folk that he might not have known, but their stories were, um, they bring lots of emotion. In fact, one of the best things that you can do if you meet Amin and Husty is to welcome them and not necessarily talk about what's happened 11 months ago, but rather to just to engage them right here and right now. That's really helpful for them. But I thought it would be good to start by asking you, Amin, just a little bit about your story, because in answering this question this morning, what would Jesus do about asylum seekers, it strikes me that it's good to understand your situation. So can you tell us uh, again, I mean, for those who have not heard, um, why did you leave Iran with yourself and Husty? Uh, in Iran, we're going to go right there. <laughs> in Iran, uh, I have two jobs and uh, my first job is accountant and my next job is a dental assistant. And my wife was lawyer in Iran, and I have good life, but uh, I, ca- I can't uh, uh, speaking uh, freedom like uh, about my religion. Uh, I in Iran uh, maybe three years ago I leave my religion, Muslim, my background religion, to the Akist, and uh, that Akist they believe only God, and uh, I I hate Muslim because. Uh, I learn more about Muslim. I go to, I went to Syria about, uh, learn more about Muslim and, uh, I, I find nothing because always they want cry. They want, uh, you don't happy and you don't, uh, have a freedom. And two months a, uh, a year, they, they have a, uh, they, they want to cry and, uh, all Friday, uh, they going to mosque and they want to. Uh, they 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 come together and they cry and they hope for uh, down with U.S. and down with England mm. and they have a fight to uh, all country uh, and I don't have any problem with another country and uh, and this became problematic for you because uh, you were telling me that. Um, being someone who has changed your religion um, puts pressure on you back at home. Could you tell us what that meant for your work and people asking you yep. to come uh, and uh, come back to mosque? I, I, I have a job in uh, the big company in Ahvaz, my city in Iran, and uh, they, they work uh, for governments and they tell me uh, you should be come to mosque every Friday and Every week, uh, Sunday, because in Friday in the, my country is holiday. No Sunday or Saturday, just Friday. And Sunday, uh, Saturday, when I back to work, they ask me why yesterday you don't come to uh, mosque. I say my wife was sick. I have excuse. Uh, next week, I say I'm not well. My mother's. I go for visit my family and. They ask, uh, the one, I have one good friend there, tell me they looking for you, why you don't come to mosque and, uh, sometime you use, 
bad word to the Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of this, the pressure began to build and you were telling me that you made a decision to try and find uh, asylum in another land. Now, when you did that, you'd been planning for about a year. You took an aeroplane trip to Indonesia and you found someone in the airport mm. who promised you a good, a good, lovely, luxurious um, boat to Australia. Yeah. Before I look into, uh, before I push out in Iran, uh, I look in the internet about who can transfer us to the, another country, good country, and I look into internet the best country in the world, I look just Australia, and I look uh, the best city in the world, I just look, look uh, Melbourne. And, and the uh, best community in the world, you NCR. Thought, NCR. Yes, <laughs> sure. Wow. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> and after that, uh, uh, I, I called to some people in Iran about transfer us to the Australia. They told me we have a big ship, and that ship you have uh, two toilets. Uh, kitchen, everything, food, water, everything, and we say, yeah, good. And in Indonesia, I find one people tell me I get uh, too much money, but you have a safety and uh, maybe 20 hours you receive to Australia, and everything is okay. And when uh, I see that the video, I cry because uh, I remember that time we first going to the. Uh, one small uh, boat and maybe 15 minutes we are in the small boat to the next boat and uh, I think the change, yes change, but the boat on only 12 meter and uh, 71 people in the death boat and after that uh, we see all, all people look together what's happening and uh, where is the ship and they say maybe after one hour, two hour, we change the, sh- the boat and we see nothing. And after uh, we don't have a toilet uh, and we don't have a kitchen, after one day uh, we finish the uh, water. And very hard, you know, it, uh, you, you think uh, you sit here, you wife here, and uh, your wife is cry and you can't do anything. You can't call to anyone. You can't, you go to hospital and, yeah, very bad. From that very traumatic experience then, you've been in Christmas Island, you've been in South Australia, and now you're here in Melbourne. I asked, did you know the, that market? You said, yes. yes, I know Daniel Market. It's very cheap, cheap fruit <laughs> yes. and vegetables. And so you're very familiar with, with that setting. It's been 11 months here in Australia now. Yes. And uh, you, uh, the, the government's changed its rules right now. It mm-hmm. means that you're in a bit of a limbo. Uh, it's caught between. You are waiting to be processed, but you don't know when. Mm-hmm. Um, you are not allowed to work here. Mm-hmm. You can volunteer, which you've been doing in different places. What's it like for you right now? What's it like for Husty um, mm-hmm. in the waiting? Uh, before we came to Australia, uh, we learned about uh, law in Australia, and we saw... Uh, if the asylum seeker comes to Australia after six months, they get a work visa and a study visa. And uh, we say, uh, good, after six months, six months we learn English, and after that we go to university and we have a job and we work, we pay tax, anything. 
And when we come to Australia, after we come, the law is changed, and we see, wow, this is very bad for us, because every day we listen to bad news. One day, Tony Abbott says uh, refugees should be back. One, after one day, we say we don't give you visa, and after one day, say you, you stay in your visa because we are bridging visa. You should be a stay three years in bridging visa, no study, no work, and this is very hard for me because uh, I'm young, I have power, and uh, I, uh, I want to strength. work. Yeah. Yes. I want to work, and uh, I can't do anything. I, f- I find more than 20 jobs here, yeah. but they tell me you should be have a work visa, and yeah. I wanted to pay tax, mm. and uh, I can't work. It's a difficult time, and for Hasti right now? Yes, because uh, Hasti told me uh, in Iran I was lawyer, and uh, we have a good living, but we have a problem with religion and government, because we believe my government is terrorist. And uh, we want to know we are are young, and we want to work, and we have uh, save money, go to study, university, everywhere. And... (laughs) Sorry, yeah. uh, I married maybe five years, and uh, I want to has to come for me, baby, but uh, she's depressed and she can't do it now because tell me, a baby need money, baby need safety, baby want to happy, but we can't do this now because uh, we can't and we don't have a visa and uh, every day. Uh, I'm older, and I have a white hair, <laughs> like you. <laughs> Great. Great. I'm going to leave. <laughs> These are not very nice people here. Uh, yeah, uh, one zero. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that microphone. <laughs> Luke, you've been doing something about this because you have uh, been really um, challenged by this. What some things have you been doing um, down in Dandenong with your time um, in teaching? What, what kinds of things you've been doing? Sure. Um, well, um, last year, some, uh, at a Thursday at eight, um, Susan Moyle um, came in and, and spoke about um, something that she'd been doing, which uh, she's been involved in. Um, what's now called the Smile English Classes in, in Uh Smile standing for um, Serving Migrants in Learning English. Um, and it sounded like a really good idea to me, so I, I came along. Um, and, yeah, so every Wednesday and Thursday uh, morning, um, yeah, a, a whole lot of um, people from a whole bunch of different, uh, different countries. We've got Iranians, um, Afghanis, um, there was lots of Sri Lankans, um, uh, yeah, all, all uh, pile into uh, the, the hub in Dandenong's room, and uh, and uh, we sit around round tables, and um, we we have English classes, um, ranging from absolute beginners who yeah. who know, um, you know, who very very basic English, yeah. through to um, through to fairly advanced level where they're where they're quite. Um, fluent and I, look, I came in late on this. Um, you know, it'd been going for some time before I, before I joined in. But it was just magnificent to see um, 
look, there were some really positive things. People who had gone through the program and were now reinvesting themselves in it um, had, had stuck around after they'd sort of graduated from the top class and were now still helping out with it. Um, That's good. Had people uh, who were just, you know, I, I mean, I came in there, I'm not an English teacher, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I was kind of thrown in the deep end a little bit uh, and just given some materials and, you know, go. Um, and, and I learned a lot as I went along, but, um, but the people, even though I, I guess I, you know, it took me a while to, to, um, to work out what I was doing and, 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 uh, you know, uh, was probably not the greatest teacher in the world. Um, you know, they were just incredibly grateful for, um, very little bit that I, I could give. It's good, so, Luke. Yeah. I, I might need to stop you there because, um, Neil and Helen, uh, where are you? And uh, Neil's up there, Helen's around about, and uh, Keith and Susan, are you here? Give us a wave. Yeah, it's because there's some good folk in this place that have also been assisting and helping you guys along the way. In fact, I want to catch up with one of our federal members this week and talk to them about the situation too. We'd invite you to pray and to say, God, would just the processing itself, could that happen and hurry up? And, and if you would like to open up your space, uh, Crystal John's been going to do some training at World Vision called um, Welcome to My Home. And this week, if you'd like to get involved in that in a community newsletter, um, you can get some training about how you could invite people into your home. But this is something that we can do together. And uh, I'd invite you and encourage you over these in this interim time to invite Amin and Hashti over for a meal. Everyone, one Sunday, midweek. It'd be great to engage these guys as well. Would you put your hands together? Thank you. Thank you. I am constantly amazed at the diverse things that are happening in and around our community. Um, there are so many different skilled people doing things all the time to help others. By the way, how's your shoes going? Yeah? I've got a pair of shoes. I think I still want my other ones. But the whole idea of this is when you all of a sudden you put your feet in someone else's shoes, when you put someone else's shoes on, you get a feeling that they're just not quite as comfortable as yours or they don't have the, quite the same fit and it helps you to adjust and think about what does it mean for me um, to put myself in someone else's situation because when you do that, it kind of changes things along the way. So as you're sitting there wriggling your toes this morning, asking you the question, what would you do in this situation? How would you respond? Um, to the, the dynamic that's happening in and around the place as well. What would Jesus do? I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you're just having to make decisions very quickly. And uh, maybe it's in the workplace, maybe it's in the school, maybe it's in the neighbourhood. There's um, something that's coming your way and you're wondering, how do I make a decision about this? Maybe not necessarily what Jesus would do, but just what would you do? What's all the different processes that you go through in, in your mind? I was out running just the other day and it was night time and I was running along the, the track and I noticed in the distance, really as it was dark, there was someone else walking along the, the pathway. As I ran past this person, I realised it was a mum pushing her pram and it was dark and it was a lonely pathway along down by the creek. And as soon as I ran past, um, my head started spinning. Um, what is she doing out walking? Uh, she has a pram. I wonder if the, the time got away from her and she's trying to get back home. I wonder if she's a bit unsafe and she's feeling a bit insecure and I've just run past her and haven't said anything. And um, if, if she was my wife, if she was 
my daughter, what would I do in that situation? So probably about 100 metres down the track, I did a little U-turn. You have had one of those conversations in your head? And I thought, this is a little bit awkward, but I'll give it a... And I ran back. It was in the dark. And so about 20 metres away, I started to talk loudly and say, hello, I introduced myself. My name's Troy. Um, I didn't want to say this is awkward. I felt it. Um, But I just said to her, look, hello, I'm Troy. I'm just wondering, are you okay? Uh, To which she pulled out a headphone piece and... um, she said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I said, are you sure? Because it's dark right now and there's a long way to go. And I was prepared to, if she wanted to, walk back home with her, wherever that was. Awkward and um, thinking of my wife, thinking of my daughter, thinking about someone else, you know. And she said, no, I've got a torch. That's okay. I said, are you sure? You feel safe? She said, yes. Okay. So I went on my way. Uh, we're confronted with decisions like that every day, aren't we? When you're making a decision, what do you base it upon? Um, do you base it? At, we, I reckon if we were to write a list, we'd probably say, well, my values, uh, my, my conscience might say, uh, my experiences in the past. And then you might get to a place where you go, I think I know what the right thing to do is. But then what are the implications of me actually taking some action over this, saying something, doing something? And then you think about all the different implications and who might respond in what way and how it all works. It, this goes through our minds, doesn't it? And then sometimes we realise that people process things differently. Some people want data, some people want gut reactions, some people take a long time to make decisions, some people are really quick. You, we all fall on that spectrum somewhere. And so I really think that this morning, well, one of the key things that we want to cover in this entire next series that's coming up, and this is really kicking things off, is to, to ask the question, what would I do? But more so, what, what would Jesus do? Because at Easter time, just... This past week and a half, people all around the world who called themselves followers of Jesus celebrated his life, uh, remembered his death and then celebrated his resurrection. There's two passages in, in the Bible uh, near the end. Or this is at the end of Mark who wrote about the, the life of Jesus. Um, he had a Roman centurion, he recorded, said these words. This man, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and had died, this man truly was the son of God. For a Roman man to say... This Jewish man was the son of God when Caesar, their boss, was actually termed the son of God was treasonous. And then John, uh, one of the followers of Jesus, he has Thomas, who we get the word doubting Thomas from. He says these words when he said, uh, Thomas had said, I will not believe that Jesus has come back to life until I stick my fingers in the holes, in the wounds. And uh, Jesus turns up and Thomas says this, my Lord and my God. Wow. Jesus didn't say, no, don't call me those things. He, he received them. And so for a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is someone who's actually realizes that when they bend their knee and they say, Jesus, you are who you say you are, the Son of God, Lord, my God. He says something changes in, in a person's disposition and their thinking. Not only do they go about in their lives asking, what, what do I want for myself But also they ask a fundamentally different question. They begin by saying, Jesus, what do you want? If you are the king and the Lord and the boss of the world, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? In fact, the way in which we define discipleship itself, follower of Jesus, is a learner. That's why Luke played that song this morning. It was inspired by a proverb that were given to the rabbis. That is that a disciple was a learner. They would learn from their rabbi, how, their teacher, by following literally so close to him that there was this this phrase, this proverb, the dust of 
the rabbi's feet would land on their disciples, their followers. They walked that close. They would drink in his words. What the, the rabbi did, they would learn from and they'd be covered in his, his thinking, his, his dust, his words. They would learn in that way. And so a follower of Jesus fundamentally asks this question. What would Jesus do? Now, if you're here this morning and you're just checking out God, you're checking out Jesus and you're thinking this isn't relevant. No, no, this is, this is good. I'm glad you're here because over the next coming weeks, why don't you ask yourself, how do I make decisions in the way I do in my school place, in my workplace, in my home space? How do I make decisions based upon what things? And then along the way, as you're unpacking those, I think you'll be able to pick up too. If I was to follow Jesus, this is the way in which those other Christian people, they think, they process. Because at the end of our time over the coming weeks, what I don't want to do is just give you some things in which for you uh, to think. I want to say, oh, I want you to, to learn these things. Um, you must uh, come up with these set of ideas that um, you have to digest. What I want you to do more than just learn some things about what Jesus would do, I want you to learn how you might think like Jesus. Not just regurgitate the things that he might say, but what he would do. Because that's what followers of Jesus are like. Thanks, Tim. In fact, I reckon it's a really relevant question today. What would Jesus do in a land of plenty? What would he do along the way where there's so much? Would he say anything about my Nintendo? Or would he say anything, Nintendo's gone, what is it now? Xbox, I knew that. It's actually been upgraded now, Xbox, there's a new X. Anyway, we won't get into that. What would he do about in my workplace, the decision that I'm making? What would Jesus say to my next door neighbour? And how would I know to go about doing that? That's at the heart of what we want to travel with. And this is the framework that I want us to use along the way. Thanks, Tim. Is that for someone to travel in the dust of Jesus, they need to come to grips with a framework that not says this is what you must think, but this is how I want you to, to learn to think along the way. Is that the most engaged, if you like, walk with Jesus. They engage with his stories and the encounters he had in the Bible. They must talk with Jesus, communicate with him and ask and wrestle because if he's alive and if he's the king, if he's the boss, then we expect that he might actually move and reflect and speak to us and that we must do a third thing. If we don't do this, it's just as dangerous. If you just do one and not the others, is to reflect. Reflect with other people because I might be wrong right here where I am. I need other people to reflect with, but also... There's a history that's gone past where other people have engaged along the way and believe it or not, they may have asked the same question. And so they may have along the way already bumped into this. So we need to learn from the history of the past of others. In fact, when it comes to answering the question, what would Jesus do? There's actually another circle around about this. It's called our cultural narratives. The whole deal along the way is that I don't come to Jesus neutral. I come to Jesus with a whole set of preconceived ideas and thoughts about the way in which life should be. It's very easy for me to just throw them upon. In fact, we're going to unpack one right now. And uh, if you like, travel with me. I've adapted it a little bit. It's actually got this from, believe it or not, the internet. But it's a researcher who actually came up with some ideas about one of those cultural narratives that's so profound and actually influences us in a very clear way. And I don't want to pick on just the Gen Yers, but this is where I thought we might start today. And we're going to reflect with other people. Every new series we do, every coming week, we're going to look at a different theme and then we're going to unpack it with a, a cultural narrative, a personal narrative, and then what unpack what that might mean for us. Let's start off with this here. 
Let's start off with a person maybe like this person. Say hi to Lulu. Let me tell you something about Lulu. Lulu is part of Generation Y, the generation born between the late 70s and 1990s. Now, I just missed out on that, unfortunately, but I'm almost there. I'm an exer. She also is part of a yuppie culture, this researcher says, that makes up a large portion of Gen Y. I have a term for yuppies in the Gen Y age group. I call them Gen Y protagonists and special yuppies, or gypsies. A gypsy is a unique brand of yuppie, one who thinks that they're the main character of a very special story. So Lulu's enjoying her gypsy life, and she's very pleased to be Lulu. There's only one issue, though, with Lulu. She's kind of unhappy. Now, to get to the bottom of why, we need to define what makes someone happy. So there's a simple equation here. Uh, it comes down to this formula. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. It's pretty straightforward. When... The reality of someone's life is better than that expected. They're happy. When reality turns out to be worse than expectations, they're unhappy. And um, this might be an oversimplification, but let's go with it, okay? To provide some context, let's start bringing Lulu's parents into this discussion. So here's Lulu's parents. Her parents were born in the 50s, yeah? They're the baby boomers. I was not... I'm not a baby boomer. They were raised by Lulu's grandparents, members of the GI generation or the generation of greatest generation there is, who grew up during the Great Depression and fought in World War II and were most definitely not gypsies. Lulu's Depression-era grandparents were obsessed with economic security and raised her parents to build practical, secure careers. They wanted her parents to have greener grass than their own and Lulu's parents were brought up to envisage a prosperous and stable career for themselves, something like this. That's it, that's the grass, it's green. They were taught that there was nothing stopping them from getting to that lush green lawn of a career, but they'd need to put in years of hard work to make it happen. As in the 70s, 80s and 90s rolled along, the world entered a time of unprecedented economic prosperity. Lulu's parents did even better than they expected to do. This left them feeling gratified and optimistic. With a smoother, more positive life experience than those of their own parents, Lulu's parents raised her with a sense of optimism, an unbounded possibility. This left gypsies feeling tremendously hopeful about their careers. A gypsy didn't just want to have a grass green lawn, though. A gypsy wanted something else. They wanted this. They wanted a green lawn with flowers that looked something like this. This leads to our first fact about gypsies, though. Gypsies are wildly ambitious. They might think things like this. I suppose I could be president. But is politics my, really the truest calling of my heart? No, no, that would be settling. I want something even grander than that, something I'm passionate about. The gypsy needs a lot more from a career than just nice green lawn of prosperity and security. The fact is, a green lawn isn't quite exceptional or unique enough for a gypsy. Where the baby boomers wanted to live the American or Australian dream in the land of plenty, gypsies want to live their own personal dream. As evidence of this, it's interesting to note that the catchphrase, follow your passion, has only gotten going in the last 20 years. In fact, other phrases like a secure career have gone out of style. Now we need a fulfilling career. To be clear, gypsies want economic prosperity just like their parents. They just also want to be fulfilled in their career. You getting the story here? We're traveling here along together. Or have I lost some people? But something else is happening too. While the career goals of Gen Y as a whole have become much more particular and ambitious, Lulu has been given a second message throughout her childhood that goes something like this. You're special, Lulu. You are so, so darn special, Lulu. Did you know that? You're so special that gypsies start to think that, hey, everyone will go and get themselves some fulfilling career, but 
I believe that I'm unusually wonderful. And as such, my career and my life path will stand out amongst others. Unfortunately, uh, a second delusion (laughs) that comes from one who is a gypsy as they enter the job market goes something like this. While Lucy's parents' expectation that many years of hard work would eventually lead to a great career, Lulu considers a great career an obvious given. For someone as exceptional as she is, for her, it's just a matter of time and choosing which way to go. Unfortunately, though, as we conclude, the funny thing is this. The funny thing about the world, as it turns out, is that it's not an easy place to live. And the weird thing about careers is that they're actually quite hard. Great careers take years of blood, sweat and tears to build. And even the most successful people are rarely doing things that, that great in their life in their early 20s. Yes, there'll be the occasional dot-com success story or app creation that makes a teenager into a millionaire overnight. But they're the exception rather than the rule. So what's the conclusion of all this? The answer? Gypsies, still be wildly ambitious. The passion is great. Go for it. But this researcher suggests along the way, go easy on thinking that you're special or more special than anyone else. After all, everyone else is too a little bit, aren't they? A narrative. A narrative that shapes our thinking. That we don't come to Jesus neutral. We come to him with some ideas. And this is how that story that we read earlier today might read along the way. It might go something like this with that narrative behind it. One day Lulu stood up to test Jesus. After all, she had completed the VCE religious studies subject. Well, to be honest, she eventually handed in her work, so passed, just. In fact, she discovered no one fails these days. Brilliant. But she was feeling hurt and let down because she couldn't do anything with her results because she was satisfying above average career, at least not yet anyway. At last, she thought, now someone who really understands my special untapped brilliance is here, Jesus. And although she secretly knew the answer already, she decided to ask him a question to be polite and give him the opportunity to see her limitless potential. So she stood up asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it, Lulu? I knew it, thought Lulu. Finally, someone's taking my passion to serve others seriously and wants my opinion. And who better than Jesus? After all, he's my bestest friend and buddy. Oops, did I almost just say boyfriend? How embarrassment. So Lulu decided in her loudest voice, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told her, do this and you will live. Of course I'm right, thought Lulu. After all, she didn't want to just pursue a steady career. She wanted a fulfilling career. But there was something that wasn't sitting right with her. So she asked, but how long do I have to do these things, embarrassment to say, before I become famous, Jesus? And there ends the story of Lulu. Now, I could go on with the boomers. I could go on with the Gen Xs. But the truth is, we all have stories that come to it. The most profound thing that the boomers might say along the way is that we built this country. Therefore, it belongs to us, belongs to our hard work, blood, sweat and tears. But as I look at Upon this whole idea, thanks Tim, we have to ask the question along the way, what would Jesus do and say to me in this, in the land of plenty, where there seems to be so much promised and we want to hold on to it at the same time? In fact, what, that's why we need to look at this particular framework and say, what is it that I bring to the table as I walk, talk and reflect with this person, Jesus? In fact, when it came down to it, more than anything else, when you want to know, when we're to start with, 
with Jesus in answering this question? He gives us a prayer. And this is how the prayer goes. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Just keep it there for a moment. You see, Jesus told a story in which the question was really being asked, how far am I obligated to love people according to God's laws? He told them a story, this one person. He said, actually, there was a priest and then there was a Levite. The crowd was supposed to boo at this moment because they knew they were bad people who'd been working for Rome. They were expecting the hero to be probably one of them that Jesus would now exemplify in front of everyone else. But Jesus chooses a Samaritan, a half-caste, a half-breed, one that they despised, and turned him into the hero. So really, Jesus was actually trying to say to them, maybe your question's all wrong. Not who do I limit God's love to, but if Jesus can take the half-breed and the half-caste, the one with a different religion to them, and turn him into the hero, maybe he turns the whole tables upside down to begin with. And says, actually, the question should be not, to whom do I restrict God's love to? But really, there's no one that I have to restrict God's love towards in action and purpose. That helps us think, doesn't it? And so Jesus gave them a prayer. He said, when you're considering my words, what I would do, begin to pray this prayer in your lives. God who dwells in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, hallowed. The turf of England. Hallowed turf. Special. Special and unique is your name above anyone else. May your kingdom come, that is, may your will be done in and through my mind, my heart, my hands, my feet, my body, all of who I am today on earth, just as it is in heaven where you dwell your place. God, would you help me understand what it is to be in your world where you dwell, and would you help me exhibit a little bit of it here on earth, in my workspace, in my school, in my life, in my interactions with people around me? And as I go about doing that, would you give me today the things I need to get the jobs done that are before me, food and shelter, but a wisdom in my space, and forgive me the things I've done wrong to other people. Oh, yeah. Would you help me to forgive them too? Because I really like holding grudges. And so just as I'm asking you to forgive me, yes, a sinner too, I'm asking that you would help me forgive the ones who have wronged me. And at the same time, would you not lead me into temptation? Rather, what I mean is, would you deliver me from the schemes of the evil one? Because evil can come in all forms, sometimes institutional, sometimes subtle, sometimes slaps you in the face. And it can take hold of my heart and my hands and my head. So I can end up doing things that are not good and pleasing to you, but wrong. You see, when it comes to answering this question, we've got to begin with a prayer, a humble one. A humble one. Because the way I look at it, my great-great-grandfather, 
He came out from Scotland, seeking a better life. And then in around the 40s, 50s, 60s, a whole group of people, sometimes whole Greek families would come and Italian families would uproot from their place and they would come to seek a better life. And then there was Asian immigration to seek a better life. And then I find that there's more people now knocking on the doors of this land saying, I'd like to seek a better life. What would Jesus do? The higher up the pole you get, I'm sure, the more complex it is in decision making. But let's start with a prayer. Luke's going to come up in a moment. What I'd like you to do is turn your attention to the screen now. You're wondering, what should I do with all this information? And we thought it might be good to start today with a prayer. There's so many different things happening. We've got 24-7 prayer in two weeks' time. We're asking people to sign up for it. You can spend a whole night or chunks of two hours in the middle of the night praying and you can write your name down here as you leave today and say, I'd like to do that. But what I thought we might do as Luke quietly plays is give us some moments to contemplate the things you've been hearing today. To maybe ask God for some discernment. God, what would you have me do in my workspace, in my school, in my home? God, what would you have me do with my family and my neighbours and who I call them and how should I interact with them? Or maybe it's this one here, asylum, and you have been prompted to ask the question, what does it have to do with me? What would you have me do? And as a result, you might respond along the way. Thanks, Luke. There's one other thing you could do with me. In 1896, a man by the name of Charles Sheldon wrote this book. It's called In His Steps. It's where we get the wristband from, WWJD, because that's what it's subtitled. What would Jesus do? I suppose he was thinking maybe that some of his religious sort of folk that he was engaged with as a minister of a church were getting a little bit dry. So he wrote for his Sunday evening sermon series a manuscript. (laughs) The manuscript pictured a community of people who decided to ask that question every day when they woke up. What would Jesus do in this workspace? What would Jesus do with my voice? What would Jesus do with my wealth? What would Jesus do? If you want to track with me along the way, I'm going to refer to this part of it. I read it. It's an easy read. In the last two weeks. One dollar from Kindle. You can download it from Amazon for 54 cents and listen to it audibly along your way in the car on the way to to work or school or unless some of you are younger, you you can put it on your iPods and listen on the train. I've got three copies up here this morning. You can have one in your hand or you can just go to a bookstore and order it. He messed up the copyright, so when no publishers decided that they would print the manuscript and he did it himself, he noticed it was popular. Then the the publishers came in and they found a little glitch in the copyright and decided they didn't need to pay him anything. 30 million plus copies of this have been sold and read over the years. I think he thought it was better that he messed the copyright up because more people could read it. Really cheap now. Why don't you go ahead? It's a different culture to 100 years ago, but it raises the question, what would Jesus do?
That's what followers of Jesus ask. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to contemplate, discern, pray and ask. And then Luke's going to lead us in a worship song.